Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where DVs and crew are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. This is episode 76 coming at you. This is September 10th, 2023. We have Bryce from Naked Mormonism. He's co-hosting. And some of the articles we're going to go through, the Mormon Church has adopted, has started to adopt crosses. That's shocking. We're going to give you the take on that. Ruby Frankie has been arrested. Uh, you're not going to want to miss our analysis on that. There's a Boy Scout whistleblower, which has shined the light on church background checks, which is absolutely shocking. And we found a local LDS church in Ohio, which is facing foreclosure. we got some really interesting stuff here. Now, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at www.mormonnewsroundup.org, or you can send me an email to cola at mormonnewsroundup.org. I'd like to invite on to our program uh, my uh, fearless co-host here, Bryce uh, Blakenagle. How's it going? We're quite well. How are you, Divas? Hey, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Now, you're, you're a very famous personality out there. You you started the Naked Mormonism podcast. What's that all about? Uh, so, well, I uh, just a bit of background to explain it. I was somebody who grew up in the church, and uh, eventually I, uh, I stopped attending the church, didn't like going as a teenager. Uh, and then as I was getting a little bit older, I started listening to a lot of podcasts because I was uh, driving trucks for a living at the time. And uh, I was like, I need to find, I need to understand the history of the Mormon church. I need to understand the church that I grew up in. So I looked and looked and looked for a podcast that was a good history of Joseph Smith and the early church. And I couldn't find that podcast, so I just decided to make it. So that is what Naked Mormonism is. It is a serialized chronological history of Joseph Smith's church. Yeah, in fact, there's a lot of episodes on this, and I've listened to many of the episodes. I haven't gotten to all of them though yet, though. But, uh, you know, start, episode one uh, starts with an intro to Mormonism and Joseph Smith. And then you have a long series on the road to Carthage, like 10 episodes. Was it like 70 episodes of this? Or how many did you do, Bryce? Uh, so, yeah, the road to Carthage series was kind of how I brought everything to an end. It kind of feels like a natural uh, breaking point, of course, at the death of Joseph Smith in 1844. Um, so that was uh, episodes 200 and... Uh, what was it, 215 to 225, I believe it was. Oh, wow. Um, and so essentially what the Road to Carthage series was, was an entire overview of the entire backlog of the show. So if anyone wants to get an understanding of the Joseph Smith, of what the podcast is like, you can listen to the Road to Carthage series, which is basically a 10-episode series that summarizes the entire podcast and then walks us through the actual shootout at Carthage and the, the events in the immediate aftermath of the death of Joseph and Iron Smith. Now, you wrapped up the Naked Mormonism podcast like three years ago. Is that right? Or Yeah, I put it on a hiatus while I put all my research and condense it down into a book size format. Obviously, with um, essentially what the podcast is, is writing essays every week. Uh, so uh, boiling all of that, you know, thousands and thousands of pa uh, pages of research down into a book that somebody will actually read uh, is a bit of a time consuming process. So that podcast is on hiatus until I am able to publish it in book format, at which point it will continue and go through the succession crisis. Uh, and of course, leading into the Utah era, which I hear is the really crazy stuff when that stuff happens. <laughs> Yeah, you bet. Now, you're also you're not sitting on your heels here. You also have another podcast that's going on right now. It's the Glass Box podcast. And um, you're you're on there. And we were hoping to have Shannon on the Mormon News Roundup. It didn't happen this time. But I listened to a couple episodes of that as well. Um, what's a Glass Box podcast? What's that all about? 
Yeah, so as I was doing Naked Mormonism, I kept uh, there kept being headlines and current events and stuff that were had a Mormon element or they were specifically Mormon related. And uh, I just uh, the serialized history podcast didn't really provide an outlet for that. So I kind of created the Glassbox podcast to be a current events podcast, as well as, um, you know, some of the projects that we do uh, also within uh, Glassbox is uh, like long form book reviews. So uh, lately we've uh, I'm just got to find my copy lately. We've been going through Saints, the Standard of Truth, and I've just been reviewing um, how it stands up. Uh, compared to what the consensus is in the history, uh, Mormon history community. Uh, before that, we've done Miracle of Forgiveness. We've done uh, uh, Bruce R. McConkie's Millennial Messiah. So we've done like these really important and impactful and oftentimes very damaging books in long-form book reviews. We also do um, uh, fun, happy news segments at the end of every episode, so we try and keep it topical. But yeah, I, I'm really hoping that uh, you can have Shannon on or maybe you can have both of us on in the future and you know she can speak her piece as well because she is an absolutely wonderful co-host. Well, that's uh, we would love to have our Shannon on the podcast. And I listened to your last episode of the Glassbox podcast. It was three and a half hours long. And it, honestly, it flew by. I mean, some of these podcasts are really long that people put out and you can't make it to the end. That's absolutely not the case with the Glassbox podcast. Um, it was very interesting going through the Saints. Um, you Obviously, with Naked Mormonism, you know your Mormon history very, very well. You're very entertaining. Um, I do want to say one thing about the Naked Mormonism podcast is that I don't know if it ruined or really helped me with Oliver Cowdery because now I can't um, hear Oliver Cowdery without thinking of Oliver Cowdung. Now, I don't know if that ruined it for me or or what. Yeah, so you know that does tap into something a very common criticism. I use nicknames for prominent figures, but um, when you're talking to especially like believing Mormons and you are bringing up people like there, it's hard to keep all the characters straight. So if you bring up the names of William Phelps. William Law and William McClellan, like those are three different Williams. All three of them have very, very different and important roles within the church. So if instead we have Double Dub Phelps and we have Professor Bill and, you know, if we have nicknames, we can kind of create like a caricature of that individual in our head and we can see them walking through the events instead of just some kind of a faceless name of William McClellan or something like that. Yeah, so you have a very entertaining and, and somewhat um, caustic uh, way of relating uh, Mormon history, right? Uh, oh, I come by that honestly, 100%. Yeah. I, I, well, and that's a, a one thing that I, I'm glad to be on this program for is that I try and be very, very hard on the church and its history and its policies and practices, but I try and extend an arm of compassion to Mormons, to believing Mormons, because they're my friends and my, and my family. I'm a secular Mormon. I'm a cultural Mormon, and that's my culture. That is my heritage. That is my lineage. You know, I'm a, a pioneer heritage Mormon. So like I, I embrace these things and I embrace these members in my life who are believing members I don't believe. So I, I tend to be very hard on the church itself. I like that term, cultural Mormon. That's a really nice term. Um, and I, you're not afraid to uh, throw a couple of jabs, so maybe you can give us the Mormon joke of the week while you're at it. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what did Emma say to Joseph when she got home from milking the cows? Um, don't come back to the barn. <laughs> no, she says, you're really rocking that hat. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Bryce, you're going to have to explain this one to me. What do you mean? <laughs> you're rock in the hat. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's good. That's good. Uh, Very nice. A okay. groan-worthy pun. Yes. All yes. right. Yeah, All right. We can okay. think, seriously, we can thank my never-Mormon wife for coming up with that little gem. So well, That's very nice. <laughs> that's very her. original. 
Yes. That's an original one. You didn't Google that one, so I appreciate that. That's why that's good. That's gonna <laughs> we're gonna jump right into the news here this week. And don't forget to uh give us a thumbs up, uh give us a like. We link to the Glassbox podcast, we link to the uh, uh naked Mormonism in in uh, check out his channel. Give us a like like, give us a thumbs up. We're gonna jump right into some of the uh, contemporary news that we have this week here. And I saw this one, Bryce, and it really gave me a, a moment of pause here. The uh Midnight Mormons, you know, they've been renamed to Ward Radio. Um, or the joke is that they've been renamed to Psych Ward Radio. That's that's an insider <laughs> joke there. But um, All right. they, they, you know, this this has gone kind of viral here, where they were talking about uh, Joseph Smith's uh, wives. And remember, the tagline of Ward Radio is that Joseph Smith did nothing wrong. So they hardly ever um, give any. They, they hardly ever retreat in any space here. But they're talking about Joseph Smith's wives, and this has gone viral. And you need to tell me here, Bryce, is this just um, uh, having a good time, or is this just sexist misogyny? Let's just play this one minute clip. All right. Smith took risks. But he also stood to gain rewards from his behaviors. Martyrdom at the oh, hands please. of an angry mob. That's like saying, well, oh. Peter took risks, but he's saying he got... women. He's saying polygamy. That's what he's going to get into. I'm assuming, he's... he's about to say it. Yeah, just just keep playing. The but video. then it's going to have to be a straw man of polygamy if that's what oh, you're going to be. On. Okay, let's see here. Hold on. Such as the dozens of spiritual wives he had. Look at that chick at the bottom right. That's not a blessing. Oh, that's not a <laughs> like, Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that's a oh, duty. Why did I not see that coming? That's a so duty. I suffer not seeing that coming. <laughs> that's a duty. Right, she didn't, they don't have filters back then. Oh. It's not good lighting. I thought it was 50 years. Come on. It's also the best <laughs> argument I've ever <laughs> Let's go. It cuts away all the academic stuff. Trent, would you have wanted to marry her? Like it is. Okay, Bryce, Bryce, is this just having good times or is this a sexist misogyny? Where do you come down on this, D-Base? I mean, um, I, I know that, look, you're you're the type of man who is not afraid to use a little bit of shock tactics, right? I, I think right. I can come out and say that, that you are not afraid to um, be a little bit in your face. And yeah. I think that Word Radio also is very similar, that they want to be in everybody's face, to be controversial. And that's how you get likes. That's how you get subscriptions. I understand that. So that's why I'm wondering, is this is this having, having a good time uh, mocking Joseph Smith's uh, wives because they, they don't fit our modern sense of uh, the supposed modern sensibilities of what an attractive person is supposed to look at? Or am I taking this too far? Or what, what do you think? Well, I thought it was very indicative that the one woman on the panel was like very quickly trying to, um, I don't know, I stroke the situation to try and diffuse a situation they didn't have filters back then and then of course she just gets totally railroaded by oh no it's time to joke here um i i felt like that's very representative but one one thing that's i think important to note here is that this sentiment is carried not just in comedy spaces but also into academic spaces when it comes to discussing uh joseph smith's polygamy and uh i i think it's important to note that like the pictures that were shown there right those are all later pictures utah pictures of the people that joseph married or um had it took us as uh, affairs however you want to say it uh, one of those people featured there was uh, Mary Elizabeth Rollins, Leitner. Uh, when she met Joseph, she was nine years old. She's the person who, like, we, we know the story of when the printing, the church's printing press was destroyed. Uh, she was running across a field uh, chasing copies or uh, of the Book of Commandments, the the first, the proto Doctrine and Covenants. She was running across the field and gathering up uh, the the leaves that had been printed but were not yet bound uh, in the the fields, right? Like these are these are individuals with like real history, with like real stories attached to their names, and it, there's a lot to learn about each of these individuals. But then just showing a picture of them from when they're in their 60s or 70s or 80s, and then saying, you know, that's a duty to marry this person. The implication. Being 
being uh, this is this is uh, uh, an unsexable hag. How could somebody ever want to have sex with somebody like this? Uh, therefore, the polygamy revelation is not rooted in Joseph's libido because he what he was doing he did it because it was under threat of an angel with a flaming sword. It was his duty to do these things. Right. It's extremely degrading to the actual lived experiences of these women. And like some of these women, like individual biographies have been written about each of them. Like, um, uh, yeah, this is like this is the, the absolute best book on Joseph Smith's polygamy. It's uh, In Sacred Loneliness by Todd Compton. And each chapter is devoted to each of the wives that we have good documentation for of Joseph Smith. And it like lists their biography. And if there are any documents to survive from those individuals, it talks about them and it tells the story from their perspective as best that we can relying on the sources. Um, and to just quickly do away with an entire deep and wide and fascinating field of Mormon polygamy and cutting away the academics with some paltry joke that she doesn't she's not hot to me. Therefore, polygamy is, you know, it's Joseph didn't do it for sex. I'm sorry. It's it's just it is just rooted in extreme sexism and it is just not not even paying uh, lip service, let alone consideration to the complexities that were involved in, in celestial marriage. Yeah, Todd Compton in Sacred Loneliness, obviously a very important work. And he also just released Todd Compton in Sacred Loneliness, the documents, the follow-up yep. book, which was just released uh, here just not long ago. And if you're into podcasts, you should uh, check out the Lindsay Hansen Park Year of Polygamy, where she goes through each of Joseph Smith's uh, uh, wives, the one that we have documentation for, and gives as much background on each of them as possible. That's fascinating reading. But I, what, what I find interesting, Bryce, is that you looked at it as, a, as not just mocking women, but as an apologetic attempt to show that Joseph Smith was just doing what he was supposed to do. That's something that I kind of missed. So uh, for, for our listeners out there, you, leave us a comment. What, what do you think about uh, Word Radio and their take on this? Is this um, just uh, having good, uh, good fun uh, or is this something more sinister underneath? We really want to know. And this does take us right into our next article. And, and the thing about this is, is that, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that people um, like the Midnight Mormons, like Word Radio, are going to mock women's appearances because they're not... Um, living up to some uh, social, a modern day social construct of what a woman, woman should, a desirable woman should look like. And at the same time, we, we have this uh, article that came out of here from, uh, uh, that this is Unraveling Utah's Paradox, a study on LDS church members examines high cosmetic surgery rates in the highly religious state. And, and this article, uh, you know, the per capita of plastic surgeons it, there, there's only two places. Uh, there's only one place in the entire United States where there's more plastic surgeons per capita, and that is, I believe, in Los Angeles. So, I mean, Utah is just—it's amazing what um, you know. It, there's 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 some kind of a, a a phenomenon in the Beehive State which says you know over that's twenty percent higher, especially women, twenty percent higher of plastic surgery. And from that last comment that we saw, I think I'm starting to realize the pressures that some people feel to live up to a supposed uh, standard of beauty that um, can be incredibly harmful. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, complications that go along with this. And, and you're sometimes you're literally putting your life on the line by going under anesthesia and, and, and getting cut and things like that. Why why is it that Utah's uh, rate of, uh, I, I know you uh, lived for a while in Utah. Why is it that uh, the LDS culture, why is it the Utah culture? Why is there such an emphasis like what we saw on word radio with physical appearance when it's supposed to be the, the the Lord looks upon the heart, I believe it is in Joshua, the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance, he's supposed to look on the heart. So what's the difference? I mean, this is you you refer to this as a phenomena, but it is something that is very hard to quantify or explain without having uh, lived experience in Utah. And, you know, I grew up in Utah. I got out, you know, uh, when I was 21, I think I moved to Colorado and experienced a world that wasn't everything Mormon. Um, 
it is something that is very inherent within the culture, and I think it taps into the prosperity uh, gospel doctrine, right? The, the idea is that, like, the bishop is usually going to be the dentist <laughs> in the community, and usually his wife is going to be, like, the the what we call like the power couple uh, members of the church. And that's usually the, the wife is like somebody who is super active in primary or in relief society presidency or something. And she's, she looks like done up perfect every time she, you know, cooks in high heels uh, when she's just cooking dinner for her family. And like the, the, she's, she has to be this perfect, perfect image of what a holy and righteous and, and delightsome uh, Mormon woman is supposed to look like. And that is dictated by the culture and the other, you know, and that's, that is sexist component that their value is um, based on what they look like. But that is so much of what in, is in Mormon culture is the missionaries are always seeking to get home and find themselves a trophy wife. And then on the, the male side of the component of that is that it's an extremely competitive religion as well, right? Like you're always trying to level up. You're always trying to wear the nicer suit. You're always trying to do things that show that you are more righteous and show that you are worthy of a, a calling with a higher responsibility. So it's an exceptionally competitive religion. And the way that that manifests is the men are always chasing better degrees. They're chasing better callings. They're chasing better, um, you know, scripture studies, sessions in elders quorum or whatever. And the women are always trying to chase the better aesthetic, the better looking family, the nicer SUV, you know, the better groomed lawn, the appearances to make the family look like they are the perfect Mormon family because the mother is responsible for shepherding the family. So it's, it's very important that, that like it just is uh, part. It is a symptom of the gender roles that have been dictated by the Mormon culture. And it is something that is uh, part and parcel that I don't think would exist without the extremely large uh, believing Mormon population in Utah. I, I don't think the trend would exist. Yeah, you know, and I wasn't planning on covering this, but just a couple of days ago, 14 women were called to the Young Women General Advisory Council here. And yeah. if you take a look, they will assist the Young Women's General Presidency. If you take a look at uh, the folks here that are being called to this, they have, um, you know, it's a very curated look. It yeah. is all of these folks. I'm going to go out on a limb. They've all had their their hair has been professionally done. Their makeup has probably also been professionally done. We may make sure that we have perfect lighting in these situations. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like the glamour shots from like the back when I was a kid, like the 1990s. This, this yeah. is <laughs> this is what you're supposed to look like. And notice that there um, from my from my take, there's only one person of color in, in this. Um, yeah. this. This is there's an aesthetic that only women, only women who fit this aesthetic uh, get called to these high positions. And it seems to be perpetuated. That's why we have the high, high levels of plastic surgery. And that's why I think people like the Midnight Mormons feel comfortable in mocking people who don't live up to that, uh, the aesthetic that the, the, the church puts forward. The church calls people into leadership positions who have a certain look, who have a certain, have a certain feel to them. It's like the Utah, it's kind of like, the, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of like a BYU cougarette stereotype. You know, and it can be extremely harmful to people. And that does take us to our next one here. This is a Ruby Frank here has made the news here. We weren't able to cover this last week in um, the Mormon News Roundup because it broke just before our episode here. But um, she has been in the news. A Utah family YouTuber, Ruby Frank, arrested. Ruby Frankie arrested on child abuse charges. Just want to play a little bit of this clip for you and get some reaction. So being a mom's a full-time job, but popular Utah family vlogger Ruby Frankie was arrested Wednesday. The 41-year-old mother of six is known for sharing clips of her children's daily lives on their now-defunct YouTube channel, A Passengers. Today, she and her business partner, Jody are accused of abusing some of them. No. Yeah, so she is accused here, uh, Bryce, of abusing her children, neglecting her children. 
failing to uh, provide proper nutrition for them, failing to provide proper um, uh, clothing for them, to house them appropriately. There's just been a vast number of uh, allegations that have come to light with this. And we covered this uh, about a month ago. She also went viral for some of her bizarre techniques of withholding food. Uh, that she would send the kids to school, not feed them because they failed to make their bed. Um, she would, um, <clears throat> she would take away their bedding from them, force them to sleep on the floor. Uh, you know, it's just really, really bizarre. And I just wonder, you know, what LDS connect, is there an LDS connection in, in this article or is this just total coincidence that she happens to be a very faithful Mormon? I mean, kind of begging the question a little bit, right? But I, I think the, there's something worth honing in on here. And that is the trend of Mormon families to be fairly large, Mormon, you know, large families. And this is very, very much in the culture that like the, uh, the national birth rate in Utah is 50% higher than any other state. Um, Mormons just have big families, but the problem with big families is that with each kid that you add into the family, that exponentially increases the likelihood that the other kids will be uh, abused or neglected because, you know, parents, have a finite amount of attention and love that they can give to, well, maybe not love, but a finite amount of attention and hours in the day that they can give to each child. And when you have more children, you're dividing that extremely limited resource even, you know, even more into more pots. And that, of course, is going to lead to abuse. That's, of course, going to lead to neglect. However, this case, I think, is quite exceptional because another person that has been uh, arrested to do to all of this is Jody Hildebrandt. And Jody Hildebrandt, I know that these two are very, very close and they work together with a lot of projects. And the I, I couldn't help but dive a little bit into connection. That is Jody Hildebrandt's uh, project, her mental therapy project here. And um, I, I'm going to say it, it's a cult, right? Like she started a cult. Um, and, and you can look at the the literature that is associated with her programs and her programs. Um, there was one uh, estimate that said that uh, Jody uh, and Ruby are bringing in something like thirty thousand dollars a month from the programs that Jody has uh, put together. But it's uh, it's a, you read the literature that she sends to you if you just put in a fake email address on her website. <laughs> And it talks about uh, it uses cult language uh, to uh, try and program uh, the identity of people who sign up for this connections program. And of course, uh, concomitant with um, uh, uh, cults and cult like practices and high demand practices, oftentimes attendant with those are physical abuse, especially of people who would, are unable to fend for themselves or realize that what they are experiencing is abuse and that so often is children. So this connections program is incredibly abusive, incredibly manipulative. And uh, Jody Hildebrandt has been on the hook a couple of times for her uh, her counseling license being suspended because she has been an extremely unethical practitioner of, of mental therapy. And it's this extension. Now, this program is um, very revealing of how these two worked together to create basically a Mormon influenced cult. And when you read the connections literature, you see Mormon terminology all throughout it. You see true with a capital T. You see uh, things are talking about eternal families. It's very clearly leaning on Mormon belief structures. And that is um, clearly a market opportunity, right? That's, that's why Utah is the MLM capital of the, the world, basically, is because confidence fraud is so much easier to commit on somebody when they you are just expanding on something that they already believe in. So this connections program clearly was utilizing the belief structure of Mormon women and saying, hey, do you feel distortion in your life? Do you feel like you're, you're suffering unnecessary pain right now? So on and so forth. So they use this language, this terminology that they 
they've crafted in order to co-opt their belief structures. A very, very fascinating story, and there's so much more to it than just Ruby Frank was uh, arrested because she was abusing her kids. Yeah, I mean, we could spend an entire episode on this, but this kind of dovetails into our last article, which talked about keeping up appearances, because on their Instagram page, um, this is what they posted. You know, they're, they're, there they are with President Nelson during uh, during general <laughs> conference. Everybody's Twizzlers got a smile. on the couch. <laughs> yeah, they, they got Twizzlers on the couch. Yep. They're playing Settlers of Catan while they're listening to President Nelson during general conference. Everybody's having a good time. And we, we're not seeing the levels of abuse here that is being put forward. It's all about appearances. And this, this caption was added later by somebody else, which said that Ruby sent Chad, her eldest son, away to a quote-unquote wilderness therapy camp, end quote, where he remained for a long time. And they have been extremely problematic as far as um, you know, have, uh, fostering abuse for supposedly troubled teens who may have you know looked at some pornography or may have masturbated uh, once or twice a month or may have uh, sipped a, a glass of wine and then they go to a therapy camp because they're they're deemed as incredibly troubled when to the average person they would be just considered totally normal you know and this has also made national news here i just want to play this real quick uh, clip here um you know did frankie uh, did uh, ruby frankie's husband know the alleged child abuse because he hasn't been arrested yet so let me just play this clip because this is really going national this isn't just a utah story frankie's parenting style is now being called child abuse, and not just online. She's been charged, along with her business partner, six counts of abuse, including starving and torturing two of her minor kids who escaped the home, were malnourished, injured, allegedly, had duct tape on their limbs. Kevin Frankie's lawyer, Randy Kester, joins us now. Did your client have a role in the behavior that's now being charged? Absolutely not. How? When he's the father and he was in the house, how did he not know and not do anything about it? Mom had the kids for the summer and uh, uh, went out of the county with the kids. And and if he had known of or thought there was abuse going on, he would have been all over it. So I, that just brings up, begs the question also, Bryce, okay, so the, the husband allegedly doesn't know anything yet. Sure, right. But what about the ward? I mean, you've got ministering appointments. These guys are going to church every single week. Was there no warning flags? Was there, is there no one in the, this is a small community in Ivan's, Utah. How did no one not see any of the warning signs to help these very vulnerable children? Well, I think that this is something that is not just Mormon, but very much inherent in the groupthink mentality. When a family is looking prim and proper and looking exactly like they are supposed to, uh, that buys them a lot of leeway of people taking notice of something that they otherwise may say something about. So, uh, and the, the, the what I'm saying here is essentially that if the Frankie family were showing up every Sunday and they were doing their callings and they were looking like clean cut, perfect Mormon family, and they have all these kids in tow and the kids have big smiles on their faces during the entire sacrament meeting, then maybe we just, we just don't, we don't pay a second thought to that bruise on, on, on little, you know, junior Frankie's wrists. We just, we don't pay attention to, oh, oh no, it was probably a bicycling accident that he got. Uh, this is group thing mentality. If we see abuse happening, it, we are very, very quick to try and excuse it away to do anything that we need to do to not deal with or confront with the, that problem here. I would be willing to bet that probably a lot of people in the ward had maybe seen signs, but to bring it up is so improper. And this is the Frankie family. How dare you say something that they that they are abusing their kids? How dare you? They're the most righteous members of the entire ward, right? So the Frankie family is putting up these appearances, and everybody keeping their mouth shut is allowing those appearances to um, overcome 
the abuse uh, or to overshadow, I should say, overshadow the abuse that's happened. You know, Bryce, what I kind of hear you saying also is because they had a very public facing persona. They had hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram. They had, you know, eight passengers. They're very well known. One of the most uh, influential Mormon YouTubing and influencing family that if somebody is trying to shine the light in it and stop it, well, that doesn't reflect well on the church. So we're yeah. going to keep silent on that portion in order to just hope that things are going well, even though there was a lot of red flags. And I just want to play this one clip here that talks about some of the red flags that somebody posted on TikTok. Listen to the uh, Ruby herself talk about her parenting style. And you tell me if you see these red flags. Really hoping that like keeping them home from school and wiping the floorboards would like really bring pain. Like, like, oh, my gosh, I really want to change this behavior that I've been exhibiting. <clears throat> and it didn't it didn't they, like it wasn't painful for them. They're like, oh, yeah, we get to stay home from school and clean floorboards. This is kind of fun. It's like, ah. So, you know, they've had these visceral experiences, uh, you know, and they haven't they haven't affected them. It's because they're so numb. And so the more numb your child is, the greater experience, the, big, the bigger the outcome, they need to wake them up. <laughs> you're, you're not going to push a boulder with just your hands. You need some real leverage. And the biggest leverage that a little child has is probably Santa Claus. And so I, I expressed to them that I love your soul more than anything in this world. And I literally would do anything to, to invite you into repentance. And I know parents say that I'll do, I would do anything for my kid, but really what I think most parents are saying is I would give anything to you. If I, I would pay any price monetarily, I don't know how many parents are actually willing to put any boundary in place that would bring a turnaround. Yeah. So what I hear from this Bryce is I love your soul more than anything. It's kind of like your physical person, your, your, your current well-being in mortality, that's irrelevant because the only thing that matters is an eternal perspective. And I want to make sure, I will do anything that is necessary to ensure that you return back to your heavenly father, that your soul goes to paradise. Even if that means severe abuse in this life, this life is only but a moment. It's only a shadow. And I have your eternal perspective in mind. Am I way out on a limb here? No, I, I think that exactly hits on the nail on the head here because it is a hollow sentiment to say, I love your soul, when what you're actually doing is you're saying, I love the optimal version of you that I am dreaming that you could become, just not you in your present form. You need to change yourself in order to become the soul that I have envisioned that you are that I actually love. She does not love her kids in the way that a, a parent lovingly and acceptingly, you know, uh, embraces their children and accepts who they are and the mistakes that they make and works with their children to help fix those mistakes and learn from them. She uh, loves her children in the way that a, a tyrant loves the, the their underlings that they are useful to them, that they are, and, and like this is part and parcel with starting an entire public personality based around your kids and you being the best parent ever, you're leveraging your kids in order to show the world how good of a parent you are. And of course that's going to fail. Of course that is going to have all sorts of problems. And of course you're gonna be under higher scrutiny when anything does come to light. Um, even if you're not you know, locking them in a basement and duct taping them and starving them before they go to school and stuff, right? Like, so, that she is clearly saying one thing, but meaning something completely different. She says, I love your soul. But what she means is, I would love you if you abide by my rules and my rules only.
Well, and, you know, and her I, rules are the, the it, leveraging the Mormon construct. She's using the terms repentance. Um, the, when she's talking about causing pain, that's one of the cult words that uh, her and Jody used in their connections program is the, the ideas of like pain. There are good pains and then there are bad pains and there are like uh, necessary and unnecessary or inevitable, uninevitable pains and that you need to embrace these things. So it's like in order for this kid to repent, they need to experience pain. That's um that's uh that's called corporal punishment. There's a reason why that's like illegal and stuff. You know, this really goes back to we covered last week Taylor Frankie Paul who also was arrested for um she threw a chair at her boyfriend in the presence of a child and endangered the child. It, it's the social influencers. They get likes, they get subscriptions, they get monetarily compensated for doing bizarre and outrageous things. The crazier you are, the more of a following that you get. So she started to see that if she started to kind of do things that were um, on the edge of being unethical, for instance, you know, you know, not sending a kid to, uh, with a sandwich on the way to school because they didn't make their bed. That, that's, you know, that's very, very unethical. It's not criminal, but it, it's bad. And she started to see that, hey, this is gaining my following. I'm, I'm gaining tens of thousands of followers. I'm making national news by doing these very unethical things that are probably not criminal. And then that's where we start going across the line because we have a perverse incentive sy system in our social media, which rewards fanatical behavior and uh, crazy personalities like this. And I just wish that something could have been done earlier to stop all of it. It's just... Um, I'm going to be following this. Follow, follow us on the Mormon News Roundup. Uh, if you want to, uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted on what's going on with uh, Ruby Frankie. And we hope that those kids are going to be taken care of and that justice will be served. Now, um, you know, in, in Utah, our, our next article here, Bryce, is the Utah, uh, what the Beehive State's high rate of weekly religious attendance means. Hmm. So, um, you know, they did an analysis here that uh, Utah has 40, I believe it's 49 percent of people in Utah go to church. In fact, I have this graphic I pulled up here from Ryan Burge, the famous researcher here. And uh, Poland has the highest rate of weekly attendance in the United States and Europe, but right behind it is Utah at 41%. So 41% of people in Utah report that they go to church weekly, which is highest even among the so-called Bible Belt or the South or uh, you know uh, stereotypical places where people think a lot of people go to church. Utah is still leading, although it is down from 49%. It used to be 49% only just a few years ago. COVID uh, you know, clipped Utah and a lot of other places here. What, the, what does the article here, Bryce, what is it arguing? What does the, the the title of the article is what um, you know what does utah's high rate of religious attendance mean what do you think that it means what is the article arguing here about utah's high rate is uh, rate of religious attendance yeah so i haven't read the article itself because it's from deseret news and i try and limit my intake of deseret news as much as possible um uh, if i want church propaganda i'll read times and seasons thank you very much uh but in any case i there's this is one of those cases where there's a lot of ways to interpret data and when you have data presented to you, one or one single datum, highest attendance rate in, uh, of all the states. Okay, what does that mean? And, and how do we get there? And at what point do we make correlations to that? And at what point do correlations become causations, right? Um, I, having grown up in Utah, I understand how overwhelmingly powerful the church is there and that Utah is still a theocracy. It has never not been a theocracy. And I know how important church attendance is in order to be a good member of the church and how much the social uh, uh, contracts kick in uh, when you are trying to put forward a presence of being a good believing member of the church. So that incites a lot of people to go to church when otherwise they wouldn't. And uh, like, I, I think that it's a far more common 
uh, for other denominations that are not so uh, sectarian specific, uh, that if we have like a standard of believing evangelical uh, Christian, they can pick one of any 30 churches in their nearby, you know, in their county that they can go to. And those are all different churches that are all run by different pastors that are all parts of different faith traditions, Episcopalians and Pentecostals and the, the evangelicals and the Calvinists and the whatever, right? But like they don't, those, those churches don't come collect their data, they don't take polling and attendance uh, collectively, and they are not run centrally the way that the Mormon church is. The Mormon church has this very interesting and unique history that, uh, that relied on the Mormons shipping in a whole bunch of European American settlers into Utah, while at the same time exterminating the Native Americans that live in the area at the time. So it created an extremely cohesive and homogenous community that Utah is still that. And it's not just Utah, right? It's the whole Morador, the Mormon corridor, right? Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, uh, Arizona, and Nevada, the whole area. Uh, it is a, a group of people that were deliberately settled there and as a homogenous community, and it's still in the process of evolving out of that homogeneity. Uh, Utah is becoming more and more diverse every year, much to the chagrin of the history of the people who have lived there previously. Um, yeah. So it's 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 one of those things where the datum that is presented here, there's just too many variables to bring it together. But it's clear that Mormonism itself has something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, like you said, if you're an evangelical who lives in Utah, nobody really knows if you're going to this church, this church or no church at all. You absolutely know your neighbors, whether they're going to, if they're LDS, whether they're going to church or not, because you're right. assigned a ward, you're assigned a state. Therefore, you know who is going to church and who is not. If you take a look at the Utah legislature, which is 85% LDS, do you think you can achieve a high ordain, a high elected position in the state of Utah, either in a city council, either in a legislative body or a governor or a school board? If you think you can get to, through those things in a heavy uh, LDS neighborhood without being LDS, without putting on the appearances of going on to church, you have another thing coming to you. Now, obviously in downtown Salt Lake City, that's, that's a little bit different. There's a few pockets for Park City and things like that where it's not as important. No negative repercussions for a person who's like an evangelical who doesn't go to church. But if you're known that you're LDS and you don't go to church, there's going to be negative repercussions either in your business life, in your personal life, in your trust factors. There's a huge amount of internal pressure that goes to attending church in Utah and so this 41% number, it is the highest in the nation, but um, there's just a lot of factors that go involved with it. Right. And I think you're tapping into something that is very crucial to the, uh, the, the, the perpetuation of the church as an entity, and that is the community policing practices that, uh, that, that ensure retention. Right. If you stop going to church, somebody usually shows up within a week or two. Right. Whether that is your bishop, whether that is your Relief Society president, whether that is uh, anybody in the elders quorum, whether that is your ministering members, so your home teachers, visiting teachers, whatever. Or even, you know, if you move to a new area, you're probably going to find missionaries show up. They came to, you know, I moved into this house uh, last month and the missionary showed up last week, right? So like the retention uh, activities that, they, that the culture has built into it that all harken back to the Mormon Reformation era, the 1850s uh, in the Utah War, um, they, they, the, the church has such a strict uh, self-policing mechanism that it holds everybody else accountable to go to church when in reality nobody actually wants to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> well, we found that out significantly in COVID when the numbers fell off of a cliff Right. Uh, with regard to uh, weekly attendance. And this is all anecdotal because the church doesn't release the information, but from the leaked information that we have, it significantly curtailed it. And we have not significantly recovered from that uh, significant chasm that we had during COVID. 
you know, and our, our next article here uh, is uh, that the St. George Temple has been, uh, you know, the Salt Lake Temple is currently being renovated. And the St. George Temple was renovated for quite a while as well. And now it's just being opened back up. And by the way, the Salt Lake Temple, from from the information that I have, the Salt Lake Temple is being quadrupled in size. It was, a, I think it was 120,000 square foot building before the construction. They're adding four additional levels below the surface of the ground. It's going hmm. to be a, almost a half million a square foot edifice. It's going to be absolutely enormous. That's what's taking so long. But the St. George Temple, it has been opened up. You know, of course, this was the first temple that was completed when the saints came west after they left Nauvoo because they just had an endowment house in Salt Lake City. And uh, Manti Temple, I think, was next here. But it has been renovated. You know, I spent some of my childhood in St. George, uh, specifically in the Bloomington area. Um, it's got, it's got a, a significant place in temple history here, and uh, it's been refurbished here. I think it uh, looks um, pretty pretty good there, Bryce. Yeah, I, look, so I am somebody who I love the architecture of temples. Um, you know, like I, I, my favorite temple is a Kirtland temple because it represents the beginning of so many things uh, in the church. And I love visiting temples. I love to see them. I'm unable to go in them ever. Uh, I did baptisms for the dead and young men's, of course, but like I've, that's the only time I've ever been in temples. But I love to see the temple because I sang that, well, that old song was programmed into my mind since I was a very young kid. But I, I do think that they are generally beautiful structures. Uh, however, I think that what they represent is far more uh, insidious. And that is the, uh, the massive parked and untapped wealth of uh, of the of the wealthiest religion in the entire world. They uh, they just have the church just has so much money that at this point, like, what can they do with that money? Revive pioneer era temples. That's a good use of this money to make them structurally sound to reinvigorate them. But I find a trouble. Uh, I, I find myself troubled as somebody who is a fan of history by seeing. Um, well, let me let me back up. I know that Russell and Nelson doesn't like nicknames, and of course that makes him the target for a lot of nicknames. One of my favorite nicknames for him is Revision Rusty, because he is very much about revising the church, about changing things, about overturning tables that have been delicately set by prophets who have come before. And one of these things that he has done uh, with these temple renovations, and I think this is truly unforgivable, is he has taken out the murals that were painted by the pioneers. Absolutely. That that is a huge, huge disservice. So this is one thing that like you can you can restore an old building and turn it into a museum piece as a fascinating study of 19th century frontier era settlers and their building techniques and what they did to furnish it. And like you can capture something and restore it properly to make it a piece of the heritage of the lineage of this religion, just like the Kirtland temple is today where anybody can go in and tour it as a museum. But when you are removing those true, those old murals out, when you are scrubbing away the true history and what that history is represented in these temples, just in order to put on a fresh coat of paint and make it so that they pass modern building regulation codes so that you can keep using them for your magic spells. I just don't, I don't see that as a good use of that money. I see it as very troubling, and I see it as scrubbing away artifacts of history that can never be recaptured. Those things are gone, they are destroyed, and they are lost forever, and I have absolutely no no, no kind words to say towards Russell and Nelson for his practices here. 
Yeah, it, it was. It was in 2018 to 2019 that the dictate came down kind of quietly from Salt Lake City that all murals were to be removed from the temples. And it took a yeah. couple of years to get all of those murals out and get them replaced. And the inside of the temple architecture has been mostly replaced from uh, they, they've shifted away the interior artwork from uh, pioneer themed or Book of Mormon themed artwork to more generic Christian artwork. Yeah. Um, and so um, we definitely seen that. Now, I did. I didn't show you the celestial room here. I got to This is a good celestial room here that I want to show to you here from the St. George Temple. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I think that that looks like a pretty good uh, picture. I would love to see. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I would love to see that, Bryce. I would love to see that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, I, I just think that, you know, huge yeah, that's temple. yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a that, that, that's a good look right there. That is a good look. <laughs> Um, but, you know, as soon as Donald Trump does oh, pass yeah. away, I think there's going to be a lot of people lined up to on his oh, one year yeah. anniversary to 100%. take care of those ordinances. In fact, yeah. they'll probably do them a couple of times just to be sure. Right. <laughs> they got a lot of sins to scrub out of them. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, if anybody needs it, it might be Donald Trump. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from this. one, but that's OK. That's yeah. no problem. Now, Bryce, you did find our next article here. And this was Tad R. Callister. He gave a lecture at Ensign College on the historical Book of Mormon. You found this article. Why was this interesting to you? So. I think uh, I've been watching the church very, very closely since I began studying church history and how the church is dealing with the Book of Mormon on the public face, because the Book of Mormon is plutonium for the church. It's so weird because like the, the church hands out the Book of Mormon to investigators or to anybody who will take a copy and then very carefully curates the study guide that the person is supposed to read a selection of verses or maybe chapters. And then they read Moroni's promise and they pray and then they're converted. Great. Awesome. That's the sales pitch. But studying the Book of Mormon, it's a it's a bad, bad book. I mean, I do a, a reading on a, a YouTube channel called R&R. Uh, we're reading Joseph Smith and we're reading through the Book of Mormon from the front to back. And it is just a, an objectively awful book, in my opinion. Uh, objectively, in my opinion, like that little oxymoron there. Anyway, um, but the, the Book of Mormon itself is known to not be a textbook of history. And that is exactly why Russell M. Nelson said that in general conference, that the Book of Mormon is not a textbook of history, because the church itself, as a corporate entity, as a correlation committee, understands that the historical Book of Mormon is not true, that the Book of Mormon is not what it claims to be. However, there are still people who are going out and making the arguments for a historical Book of Mormon. And this person is at the forefront, Tad R. Callister. In fact, I have his book. Uh, I have Case for the Book of Mormon somewhere because that was the first long form book review book that we did on Glassbox podcast, just going through and talking about how awful and stupid his book is uh, because he's making the case for the Book of Mormon that it is what it claims to be. But all of the evidence has shown completely to contradict the Book of Mormon. So we still have this person who is a general authority of the church. I should say emeritus. He was retired, but is still a general authority of the church who is speaking at Enzyme College, a church, you know, a church owned business school as somebody who is speaking about the Book of Mormon being a historical book. And I just see things like this, not so much as noteworthy or newsworthy, but these things are a relic of the past. This generation of, of church leaders that are dying off are going to have to abandon the Book of Mormon at some point or the next generation that comes in is going to have to do it. They're going to have to make some kind of an unequivocal statement, you know, beyond just saying it's not a textbook of history like Russell Nelson. They're going to have to at some point come out and, and, and own up to the Book of Mormon. And <clears throat> when we see people like Tadar Callister coming up and giving this talk, that shows me that the church is not ready to make that healing and restitution necessary 
to understand and confront the fact that the Book of Mormon is a text of white supremacists. So, so I, it's, it's a problem for me because it shows that due to Dallin Oaks and Russell and Nelson running the church, that we are currently in the middle of a retrenchment phase of the church, uh, at least from the highest leadership body, maybe not the members themselves. Uh, but that is something that is very troubling to me because the most radically conservative times of the church <clears throat> have always come at a time when it is retrenching in response to the rest of society society progressing. Civil rights era is a great example of that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Aaron Ra. His YouTube channel is really amazing, and his debates are really something special. And the fact that he was raised LDS is also interesting. I did watch some of your reading of him with the Book of Mormon. I think you have like 10 episodes of that, or... Uh, we've been, uh, I mean, we're in Alma 36 yeah. or something now. So yeah, we're pretty far along right now. We, yeah, we've cracked I, the halfway point of the book. So yeah. Yeah, I did. I did watch some of that. It was pretty interesting stuff. And I would like, there's one small caveat. Uh, uh, Russell Ellison, when he said the Book of Mormon is not a book of history, I believe he said that at a mission president's conference at the Missionary Training Center and not in general conference. But yeah, to your point, he did say it. Now, um, you're right. Uh, Tad Al-Kalashtar, he was, uh, he served in the presidency of the 70 and he was also the Sunday uh, General School Presidency, right? He's emeritus now. Yep. But obviously speaking to Ensign College, that has a lot of weight and authority. And here, we're queuing up uh, one section here, uh, uh, Bryce, that you found very interesting in this particular lecture, which yeah. is uh, called Facts That the Book of Mormon is True, which, by the way, as far as an, a construction of an English sentence, is not exactly correct, but we'll give them a pass on that one, because um, that's not really how you construct sentences, but that we'll, we'll, we'll just let that go. What are we going to see in this clip that we're queuing up here that uh, caught your attention to this particular address? Yeah, this is, uh, the, I wanted to play just this very brief clip because this is Tad R. Callister planting his flag on a historical Book of Mormon. And I also want us to keep an eye on this guy because he is he is basically one of my very first picks to be next in, in line for Apostle. Uh, if they don't go with a diversity pick, which they've done the last couple of times, um, if they go back to a, an old white guy pick, I think that he's at the top of that list. Uh, so Tad R. Callister is not somebody to sleep on. He's written extensively about the Book of Mormon. He is somebody who is extremely extremely smart, extremely educated, and he's a good uh, rhetorician, right? So he can actually spin a little bit of rhetoric. So this is him planning his flag on a historical Book of Mormon, and I want us to keep this guy in mind. Okay, here we go. What positive evidence do we have that it was divinely inspired? In other words, let's switch from defense to offense. If the critic wants to be credible, he must not only have the privilege of asking questions, but the responsibility of answering them. First evidence, archaeology. Well, I believe this is a lesser evidence. It is nonetheless an evidence. Suppose for a moment I told you that I had a magnificent iPhone 11 when I was your age. You would no doubt shake your head and say that's impossible for the culture because they didn't have iPhones back in those ancient days. Well, my claim is what we call an anachronism, something out of date, out of place, out of context. Well, for decades, critics have been looking for anachronisms in the Book of Mormon that would prove it a fraud. But with the passage of time, their allegations one by one have backfired, only providing greater evidence of the book's truthfulness. Okay, uh, time out, Bryce. Bryce, did he say archaeology was a positive, uh, yes. was an evidence He's, for the Book of Mormon? Archaeology? going on offense for it, yes. With archaeology. That's with not where you want to go on offense, Tad. That's not yeah. your offensive point, by the way.
Sorry. <laughs> and I, I mean, and we don't have to play any more of it, but he just keeps going and going and going. And he tries to deal with a couple of things, talking about steel, talking about horses, chariots, and just very quickly mentions those things and then just quickly ignores them and transitions to the next point in his presentation. And what's fun is this presentation is just a very boiling down simplistic version of his book. His book is constructed in the same five parts. It is just, it's just a recitation of his book chapters, essentially. And I, I think it's just very very funny to watch a church general authority going on the offense at a at Enzyme College, right? This is a this is a an audience of 18 to 24 year olds, young budding Mormons who they are trying to train up to be the next generation of scholars to go out there and prove the Book of Mormon true. This is who he's giving this lecture to, and he's asserting a Book of Mormon that is historical when I know that almost everybody in that audience is like horses. Steel and chariots, Tad, mm, Brother Collister, mm, are you sure you want to go down this path? I, I mean, I'd be willing to bet that the majority of the people in that audience are more familiar with these issues than he is. So, I, I find okay, you want to go on offense on the Book of Mormon? That that archaeology is not where I start with. Okay, <laughs> no. that, that that's just not the place because we haven't found one site definitively in the New World that was linked to the Book of Mormon. We have potentially found a site in the old world one or maybe two sites potentially in the old right. world out of something like i don't know 150 named sites so no we're, we're not going to start with archaeology on offense buddy you need to go you need to refine your tool bag and it just goes to show me bryce that you know when it comes to defending the book of mormon when it comes to putting out scholarship on the book of mormon the church is um it's always lacking far behind in fact i i just found this 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 week here oxford university press speaking of the book of mormon just released this uh, uh this uh, an annotated book of mormon this was published just a couple of days ago and it wasn't published by the church. It was published by Oxford University Press. That's the first fully annotated academic edition of the Book of Mormon. This is almost a thousand pages long. It's a huge uh, volume here, whereas the normal Book of Mormon, even with the uh, footnotes and whatnot, is only about 512 pages long. So this has got all extensive annotations giving meaning to specific pra uh, phrases, book introductions, general essays. Um, it talks about the debates. It has, um, you know, it's basically like a modern Bible translation, an attempt to kind of make the Book of Mormon into kind of like the uh, modern, you know, um, academic Bible translations. And but this again, Bryce, this was not put out by the church. This was not put out by a general authority. It was not put out by Tad Alcoster. It was put out by Grant Hardy, who is an academic um, uh, at a secular university. The church, you know, is it, kind of talking out both sides of their mouth. They're saying in Ensign College that the Book of Mormon is a historical record and it's facts to back it up. But then when it comes to peer reviewed scholarship of, of publishing these in the academic sphere, no, nowhere to be found. In fact, yep. the Royal Skousen's critical edition of the Book of Mormon that we've been waiting on for like 15 years still hasn't been published. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in Royal Skousen himself and, and like both Skousen's, Cleon rests his peace in hell. Uh, <laughs> the Skousen's like they they publish as independents, too. Right. Like what we are looking for is something that is a published authoritatively by the church that is an academic defense of the Book of Mormon. That's what we would expect to see if the Book of Mormon is what it claims to be. And more importantly, if the Book of Mormon is what it claims to be, the passages and the information that is contained in it, the locations, the items that are described, not the people, but the items that they use, the crops that they are harvesting, um, it should be descriptive. We should read the Book of Mormon, and it should point us to where we need to look in the ground to find what we're looking for. But every time we try and go looking anywhere for anything that is contained in the Book of Mormon, we find stuff that disproves the Book of Mormon. 
So the church is clearly aware of this. And because there has been this dearth of information published from the church about a historical Book of Mormon for so long, it has led to this little cottage industry of apologists like the Skousens, like um, Tad Collister, like Brian Hales, who are publishing books and articles about how the Book of Mormon can be historical. But it is once again, when you read these, when you read the cases that they're making, when you're reading their lines of argumentation, they are not making historical defenses. They are making logical defenses because this is a shrinking book of mormon this is a book of mormon of the gaps because as we find oh. out more from archaeology the smaller and smaller the book of mormon actually becomes and wow. eventually it will be shrunk out of existence and it's it's i mean it has long since for for uh, for over a century the book of mormon has been shrunk out of historical existence it's just a matter of the people who are in positions of authority coming to grips with that and actually making a decision that is based on that instead of based on trying to cover up that problematic fact Wow, the Book of Mormon of the Gaps. I love that term. That's an amazing term. And but it kind of reminds me of Simon Southerton, um, who said that when DNA first came out, like in the late 1990s, and um, you know Thomas Murphy was, uh, you know, almost getting excommunicated over linking the, over the lack of uh, Native American, uh, the lack of Israel-alike DNA in Native Americans. Simon Southerton said at the time that nobody could have proved or disproved the fact that 20 people came into an indigenous population of a million people. He said, back in 1995, we didn't have the technology to show that 20 Israelites came into a huge other population. But now mm -hmm. we do. That's, yeah. that's the difference is that now we do have the technology to show if 20 people came into a population of a million, and we still have yet to find those. Now, you can find this book here, Bryce, on um, Amazon, just released a couple of days ago. Um, it's, it's a top release here, uh, five stars. Um, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to I think I'm going to order this. I think I'm going to take a look at this. It looks like a fast. Probably very uh, interesting. I, I would love to pick up a copy and see just because I want to know what what the bend of it is. Right. Because Grant Hardy is a believing member of the church and uh, clearly an academic. How I want to see how he navigates these things in an academically responsible way, because that should be prescriptive for how the church deals with these problems, too. Yeah, good point. Now, uh, we got a couple last articles. We always like to cover something on uh, BYU because that's, uh, you know, the church's uh, flagship institution here. And this really caught my eye this week here. Ben Shalabi, who is, um, I would say, one of the most famous openly gay members of the church. Um, and he was a senior administrator in, um, they used to call it the Diversity and Inclusion Office. I think that's what they call it, uh, the Diversity and Inclusion Office. He's uh, openly gay. He has announced here on uh, just a couple of days ago that he is leaving BYU. He's going to be starting his own um He's going to be starting his own therapy, uh, uh, personal therapy, uh, private therapy practice. And um, he's very famous also for the fact that, you know, he's he was working in 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 conjunction with the Honor Code office to help um, mostly LGBTQ students, um, you know, get along at BYU and be able to stay enrolled in the school. And he also uh, he, there's a note here on his Instagram from Kevin Worthen, the new uh, president, uh, the old president of BYU, that Shane Reese is the new one, how thankful he was for his service. And just a couple last notes. He was also uh, linked with uh, Charlie the Cougar, who is an, also another uh, gay, um, openly gay member of the church. And, uh, you know, he's just he's leaving. And I find the reason I find this remarkable also is that the fact that just two weeks ago, the church updated its uh, a conduct of instruction for all of the CES system, saying that any homosexual behavior whatsoever would be cause for expulsion from B from BYU Provo, BYU Idaho and Zion College. And I, I don't want to read the tea leaves on the wall. I don't have any insider information, but it's amazing that the, the only last openly gay administrator at BYU left about two weeks after the church came out and said that any any homosexual uh, behavior, even just 
anything romantic. That would include holding hands. That would include hugging. That would include giving somebody a kiss. That would be cause for expulsion. And now Ben Shalati's leaving. I don't know if you can put two and two together, but I do find the timing to be very remarkable. Well, I think it's interesting because like BYU, I mean, like BYU being a child institution of the church, it's like it, it, like the, the apple doesn't fall far from the bigotry. Right. And in this case, like we see that the BYU is the public facing institution that is related to the church, but is not the church, but is subject to more pressure than the church, because the BYU has to be an accredited university that is accountable to the standards of other universities, obviously. And in order to be a, a university, maybe not necessarily accredited, but an, a university that people will want to go to and get an education at you have to not be exclusive um well exclusive i'm not saying exclusive is like oh exclusive take on no, no no i'm saying like you cannot be exclusionary of people in order to be a, a school that people want to see a degree on the wall from and byu the like they like i said it's it's an era of retrenchment right this is the nelson oaks retrenchment phase of the church and it is going to take many many decades to come out of this especially with bednar on the short deck uh to become the next prophet uh, this retrenchment phase is not going to be over until the 2050s. And uh, what we're seeing right now is a cleansing, a purging of um, gay academics and gay students and a cracking down on any sort of behavior that might even look gay. That is, I, I mean, that is regression. That is regressing the church back to the 1990s. Uh, that's pretty dangerous and very scary. And I like, look, I, I go to Sunstone, I go to John Whitmer Historical Association, I go to Mormon History Association, right? Like a lot of the people there or no, numerous of the people there that I interact with, that I go to their presentations and ask them questions, work for BYU. And I once in a while am allowed to peek a little behind the curtain to see how troubling it is and how hard it is for academics who work at BYU, because these are people who their entire livelihood is wrapped up in the church, not just their professional life, but their entire personal life. Most of them have grown up in the church in Utah, and now they work for BYU. Everything about their life is tied to the church. And when the church does things that their own personal morals don't agree with, like, say, kicking out gay people out of the church, then that causes a lot of trouble for them. And they are either forced into silence and compliance or forced to up in their entire life and change career and change families and move to a whole new state and, and, and change everything about their lives because the institution itself is not changing. So I see the people who are caught on the crossfire. I see the people who, you know, Holland is calling for more musket fire from, and I see how reticent they are to enter the public space because they know, because they are academics, they know the church is on the wrong side of historical and social issues right now, and that this retrenchment phase that we're currently living through will be over soon. So they like they are just treading such horrible and, and brackish waters right now. I do not envy any of them. Uh, and the church is, the ch this is the church, right? Right? The church is responsible for this. This is, you know, by their fruits, you shall know them. And when you have a bunch of people, you know, one of the only people who was a gay representative who worked for the church's BYU leaving now who's left, all that's left is closeted gay academics who work there. And that's not a healthy and, and thriving institution. That is an institution that operates by fear. And that's, well, it's very Mormon, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Charlie the Cougar, who we saw in the picture of the Instagram, hold, um, you know, he, he had his arm around Ben Shalati. He has gotten engaged and he will at a minimum be disfellowshipped. He might even have his records removed for um, in, getting married in a same-sex relationship. David Archuleta was a prominent member of the church just last year. He has yeah. left the church. Ben Shalati is the last openly gay, uh, well, besides Tom Christofferson. 
Um, he's basically the last openly gay uh, member of the church in good standing, and now he's leaving BYU. That leaves only Tom Christopherson left, who's not really affiliated with the church as the last openly gay member of the church. Right. Like, so position. who is the next gay spokesman for the church? Who Who is like somebody has to take the step up to the plate right now. I mean, there are a few contenders who may may take that position. But like right now, as the stands, right, they have purged and cleansed their entire gay representation. I mean, that's that's pretty much I mean, this would be very this would be similar to if uh, Darius Gray had left the church in 1977 before they gave priesthood to, to black men. Right. Like this is this is the, the most prominent people who are operating as spokespersons, as apologists for the church's bigoted policies when they are leaving the church. Like uh, that's just not a good look. I mean, especially in in this era, in this era of progressivism and and looking forward to a more diverse future that the majority of people are doing right now. This is just looking more and more like a sore thumb regressive institution. Well, if you think about it, David Archuleta, who was really a church spokesperson for being a, a happy LGBTQ person, his YouTube videos have now been uh, unlisted that were part of like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and other things. They're now unlisted. That's if you look crazy. at Charlie the Cougar and his Deseret books, they mutually agreed to pull his books out of Deseret books the, the moment that he announced his uh, engagement. I just wonder, is the same thing going to happen with Ben Shalati because he had a lot of firesides, he has a lot of uh, products, and now that he's not working at BYU, is he, is, see, the church loves to embrace you when you say, okay, I'm gay, I love the church, and everything's going to be cool. Join the church, just look at me, I'm happy, and you can make it work. Then you're put out on the pedestal. The moment that that narrative changes, you're dead to the church. You're gone. All of your materials, you're, you're vanished, erased from existence like Back to the Future. All right, uh, we got three <laughs> last articles to get through here, Bryce, and uh, this one really caught my attention. Um, Massillon Latter-day Saint Church faces foreclosure. <laughs> faces foreclosure. <laughs> This is in Ohio here from the Canton repository here because of an unpaid bill. This this church here, Bryce, is, is going through the foreclosure process because it lost its tax exempt status for not paying its watershed conservatory district assessment. So they didn't pay their bill for eight years. And now that uh, small bill there of a couple thousand dollars, the church now owes a quarter million dollars in back taxes. And the tax authority here kept sending letters to the church saying, hey, you didn't pay your conservatory fees. And as we noticed with a lot of chapels, there's not really a place to put the mail on a church. You know, there's no mailbox, you know, because there's not somebody there. You knock on the door during the during business hours. Nobody is usually yeah. there. And yeah. so they're going through foreclosure here um, and they're trying to uh, stop the process here. But I find it very remarkable here, Bryce, that an institution that has almost three hundred billion dollars in assets and investments can't pay its $2,000 conservatory. Uh, I know. <laughs> just can't believe it. Well, and beyond that too, allowing it to go into foreclosure as well, instead of forking over the, the quarter mil uh, bill for it in back taxes. Yeah, right. Look, so clerical error could easily, you know, this look, multinational, multi hundred billion dollar corporation. Of course, some stuff's going to slip through the cracks. That's okay. And then you pay the, 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 the fine or whatever to make the problem go away. And nobody ever talks about it again. The fact that they allowed it to go into foreclosure instead of just paying the fine. Yeah, leads me to wonder if maybe attendance numbers at that chapel were pretty lackluster to begin with. And they're like, yeah, you know what? If they foreclose on this, this is one less less chapel that we have to go through the bad PR of selling. And we just, you know, we just write it off. I don't know. I 
that could be kind of a stretch. But back in 2015, the auditor's office in Ohio sent a certified letter to the presiding bishopric in Salt Lake City saying, hello, you haven't paid your bill. It's only a couple thousand dollars. And that just uh, got lost at the church headquarters. They continued to follow up and uh, they just never wanted to do it. I mean, I don't know about your theory because this 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 chapel is worth about one point six million dollars. Right. And even if the church were to sell a lot of times when the church I've noticed when the church sells the property, it only sells for about maybe half of what the church thinks that it's worth. It's yeah. quote unquote assessed value. Now, these are typically not assessed um, like for tax purposes, but they're often assessed just to see how much land and how what the building would be worth if it wasn't tax exempt. And so those usually get like, I don't know, 800,000 in North America or maybe a million dollars out of a chapel. It's hard for me to understand why the church is, you know, ignoring all these certified letters and maybe losing a chapel over foreclosure just because they didn't want to pay its taxes. And it just reminds me the church hates paying taxes so much, <laughs> so uh, much. It hates to pay those taxes. And the church is tax exempt almost everywhere, but in places that it's not tax exempt, like in Australia or in this water conservatory district, they will fight tooth and nail not to pay those couple thousand dollars in assessed value. And just the irony here is just really remarkable. I mean, I'm reminded of uh, your episode with Jacob Hansen and him, you know, uh, going out on uh, the forefront and defending this behavior. And look, like I, 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 I'm, if you want to defend the the richest church in the world, fine. Just, just, uh, what, what, just don't be a hypocrite, right? Like either believe in the Book of Mormon or believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. You can't believe in both of them because the two are mutually exclusive. But in any case, right? Like the the church has so much wealth, like. What else can they do with it? And every single time that we see this pragmatic relationship between the church and government have a tiny snag like this, it is decades of lawsuits from the church to try and not be held accountable for money that they might owe. Right. Like that's that that is. um well, it is part and parcel with the, the, the corporate world that we live in, like the corporate friendly world, I should say, that we live in and the, the lack of regulations that we have, especially on uh, large corporations that are religious entities. So I get the, the, that it has arrived to where it is. I'm just saying that we got through the, we got here through a lot of really unethical and immoral steps. And the church at, at its current level of wealth is kind of the height of immoral and unethical wealth gaining and look the book of mormon studying it just strictly as a piece of literature it has a lot to say about people and institutions who are wealthy so like i just wish the church like i i i have a problem fundamentally with big corporations um but i also recognize that they exist i just am extra mad when those mega corporations are just hypocritical to their very foundations to their own their own faith claims to their own theological claims. That's just something that deeply rubs me the wrong way. Speaking of Jacob Hansen, by the way, when it comes to the 12th article of faith, it says we believe in honoring and sustaining and obeying the law. He said that that actually the church doesn't believe in doing that from its uh, from its entire history, from polygamy, from Joseph Smith, uh, all the way back. The church doesn't follow its own advice. And I just think also about this uh, about this particular thing. Think the church has like 14000 units of chapels, branches and buildings that are used for worship purposes. And if each of them, just like this uh, particular chapel in Ohio, was assessed, I don't know, three thousand dollars worth of taxes every year, you'd be looking at, I don't know, about $50 million worth of taxes that would be going to the government to help pay for the services that the church uses. Those uh, fire firefighters that come to the call when the church is on fire, or the police when somebody calls and, and says there's an intruder, or the roads that are paved in front of that chapel, all that $50 million could be being used for those to fund the government services. But instead, yeah. you and I have to pay extra 
to uh, to make sure that those services are provided because the church, even in the few places where it is assessed even a small amount of tax, it just doesn't want to pay those taxes. Any, any last thoughts on this price? How much money do those lawsuits also cost the government, right? Because it's not only yeah. that the church is not paying, but the church is costing the government by taking it into litigation. And like that's, I'm sorry, that's just twofold, right? So like the SEC violation that they had to pay $5 million, so they, you know, uh, shake it out of the couch cushions in the Holy of Holies, right? Like $5 million <laughs> is nothing to this institution, but the, invest the government investigation that they needed to conduct in order to seek how much damages were required in order to make restitution for those illegal or unethical practices um that probably cost a few hundred thousand dollars it was you know an entire government agency that had probably an entire team of people who were dedicated to investigating this one thing for a few months and it costs money and then of course every time that the church has to pay something they take it into litigation and then that of course is going to cost millions of dollars and and months or years of time that instead could be devoted to courts actually chewing through the backlog of other cases that are not superfluous and ultra mega corporation uh, uh, infighting like this. It's, it's just it, every possible way the church is just a parasite on society. I, 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 I know that's a very unpleasant way to look at it, but it is only sucking resources out of society. It is not giving us anything useful back. Well, think about the Cody Temple, Wyoming. The church has filed two recent lawsuits to sue the small town of Cody, Wyoming, in order to get its temple put in there. The church is also suing in Heber Valley because the city council doesn't want to have the, uh, the temple there um, uh, messing up the dark sky. So they're filing lawsuits in there. And also think about all of the times that the church is... Um, there, there's child sex abuse in the church, and the church almost always lines up on the side of the perpetrator, which is forcing the government to expend a high number of resources to bring justice to the victims. That's also costing a lot of money as well. In, in right. fact, that brings us to our next article, Bryce, the, the Boy Scout whistleblower here. Uh, Mormon church swayed abuse policy. This was just put out by Axios here a couple of days ago from Aaron Alberti. This is a thunderbolt. I couldn't believe this, Bryce. There is an allegation that has appeared in the popular Netflix documentary, Scout's Honor. And the whistleblower here, Michael Johnson, he said this, this. I couldn't believe when I read this, Bryce, former director. He's the former director of the Boy Scout of America's uh, uh, Child Protection. He said in the film that he wanted to implement, uh, quote, what I felt was a very medium level of policies and content training upgrades for youth protection. But the problem that he ran into, Bryce, is that because the church at the time represented almost 30 percent of Boy Scout of America troops in North America uh, or, or in the entire world, I believe in the entire world, the church, as we know, is not keen on doing background checks. Therefore, the Boy Scouts of America didn't implement the background checks. And that has led to uh, that has at least led in part to 80,000 uh, sexual abuse claims in the Boy Scouts of America, which led to a two point two billion dollar settlement. I cannot believe what I read in this article. On one hand, it's not surprising. Uh, like when you read something like this, like the initial shock factor hits and it's like, wow, the church literally actively engaged in covering up child sex abuse in Boy Scouts of America. And it's like once the shock falls off, it's like, yeah, of course that happened, because that's all that the church does when child sex abuse comes up. And when people bring up that the church has practices and policies that make it more likely for children to be abused, those people are excommunicated instead of implementing the changes that would make it so uh, there are not child sex abuse problems in the church. So, like, it's surprising to read, but not surprising in the least that it happened. 
Yeah, so this is from the, uh, again, this is from Johnson, he said. He, he kept getting told that Mormons may not like background checks. And as a result, the senior BSA executive told him, you need to understand something. The Mormons are sacrosanct, meaning that if the Mormons don't want background checks, then the entire BSA is not going to do the proper background checks either. Yeah. So it's not just that Latter-day Saints failure to do background checks affected the BSA congregations at their own levels. It's the fact that they affected the sexual abuse claims of the entire organization for years, I don't know, maybe even decades of causing problems in other either religiously affiliated troops or non-affiliated troops to begin with. This is just absolutely appalling. And, you know, there was a uh, th this came out just this week here. I haven't had a chance to watch it, Bryce. This is the Netflix documentary Scouts Honor, the Secret Files of the Boy Scouts of America. After reading this article, I'm definitely going to watch this this week here. To say, I remember, I mean, there, there was a headline it was like two and a half, three years ago that the church was divorcing itself from the Boy Scouts of America. And everyone was like, oh, well, that's because it's changing to Scouts of America. You know, they are they're allowing girls in. I think that was part of of the reason for the divorce. But I think the finances really is what what played a huge role in this, that BSA itself was going to be on the hook for billions of dollars in sex abuse damages and that the church was trying to cut and run before the bottom dropped out. And they didn't fast enough. And that's wonderful. I mean, good, like good. A huge uh, corporation is accountable for abusive practices. That is awesome. Um, even if it is just at this point that they, that some victims are being paid out, uh, if that hasn't led to policy changes yet, uh, I just hope that more of stories like this, more whistleblowers come out that continue to press the church to make policy changes. Cause that's all we're asking for. We're just asking to make it so the bishops' uh, interviews are not one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors and they, they don't ask sexual questions. It's a very, very simple policy change that would make it so that huge avenue of abuse happening can no longer happen or is much less likely to happen. So small policy changes would stop this from happening. Small policy changes two decades ago would have stopped the church from having to pay out $2.2 billion, right? So like these are small changes that could have been made and every day that they aren't being made is another day that we're adding to the tally that the church is continuing to abuse people. It's unacceptable just, behavior. Just one point of clarification, the total BSA settlement was $2.2 billion. The church is not on the hook for that total price tag because there's 80,000 litigants in uh, this class action settlement. And right, I believe okay. that the number is approximately 7,000 or LDS. So the church is not going to be on the hook for all 2.2 billion. Right. Okay. Um, but Thank the you. church initially offered 250 million to settle its portion of the abuse, but that was thrown out by the judge saying that we think that the abuse is going to be um, more egregious or there could be more victims or 250 yep. million is not going to be enough. And to, to my knowledge that the actual number has not yet been yet settled as to what the church's number of that total portion is going to be. I don't, I don't have that information, but yes, it is. It's just absolutely horrific. And in uh, the same lines here and during this same week that this uh this uh, whistleblower this documentary really shook everybody at uh, the same week I i've got to play this for you here bryce this is a, a jennifer roach from fair lds she's an lds apologist she's appearing here on the leading saints podcast which i believe is a church uh at least an indirectly funded church podcast so I, I could be wrong about that but i believe that that is the case and she is going to argue here bryce the unthinkable she is going to tell us how running background checks uh, for uh, Latter-day Saints who are working with children at the local congregation, how that is actually um, an immoral practice. Yeah, you heard that right. Let me let me play for this this for you, Bryce, and get your thoughts on someone defending the undefendable position of saying that background checks actually do more damage than good. Listen to this. Very, very strictest version of a background check used by any church in the United States that I could find. They check the terrorist watch list. They're checking to see if you've been convicted of a crime in the last seven years. Not accused, mm -hmm. not suspected, but convicted. 
and they check that the person is not on the publicly available sex offender websites. Yeah. Here's the danger. When the church says, we have called Brother Jones to teach in the primary, and he has a clear background check. What people hear is he's safe. They've done this thorough, thorough, thorough check, and, and there's nothing. This guy is squeaky, squeaky clean. But it doesn't mean that. It means he's not on the terrorist watch list. He hasn't committed a crime in the last seven years, and he's not on the sex offender website. So we've just told a whole bunch of people, Brother So-and-so is safe. You can trust your children to him. And let our guard down, right? Yes. Yeah. The and let our guard down, Bryce. We're letting our guard down if we do background checks. Full disclosure, uh, I had watched this when you first sent the notes over, and I was just agape. Like, that. I no, no. That there's, there's no possible way that she just seriously made that argument. Because as opposed to now, when uh, Mormons are call or you know a, a person is called to be in a leadership position and everybody puts their arm to the square and if there is anything problematic in their record it's a little flag it's a little asterisk it's a footnote on their record that only the bishop sees as it currently stands so you're saying that that's a better system than maybe even just doing the ba the very basics of running a criminal background check and saying the same thing that this person is okay. Cause like at the end of the day, the person is getting into that leadership position at the same regardless, right? They're getting in whether the people know that this person has passed a background check and he's clear or the person, they raise a the right hand and say, we sustain the person, right? So in any way that it's done, the background check would just un inevitably be better than the system that is currently is because the system as it currently is, is, well, the bishop thinks he's a good guy, so he must be a good guy. And therefore, magic powers of discernment, he can't abuse anybody. I, I don't buy it. Yeah, it's just incredible. Look, a background check is not going to catch everyone. There's no silver bullet which will absolutely yeah. catch every single person. Okay, But there's absolutely no one who's making the argument that background checks don't help in the long run. You'd ask the people who were abused by people who are already sex offenders. Ask those family members. Ask those children. Ask the people who are abused by the people who would have been caught by the simple $20 background check. Ask them how they feel about it, Jennifer. And, you know, the, the most amazing thing here, by, by the way, Bryce, is that Jennifer Roach was this year's recipient of the John Taylor Defender of the Faith Award from nice. Fair LDS. She does a weekly podcast that goes along with the Come Follow Me. So if you uh, told the church's official position that background checks are inherently, as she said, what, what, what was the words that she said? That she said that they were give a false sense of security. If you follow the same line, then you get awarded by Fair LDS. You're given podcasts, which are sponsored, presumably, by the church. You're paid money. And you set yourself up for, um, I don't know, awards and, and acclaim. Just so like the, the logic that she is using here is just so foundationally wrong that it's hard to say anything to even begin to, to, to talk about it in a reasonable way because it was so unreasonable to begin with. But yes, you're absolutely right. And what you're talking about here is systematic problems and the systematic remedies that need to be put in place. You don't have to talk to victims. You don't have to talk to survivors themselves. You don't have to talk to abusers themselves. Talk to maybe advocacy agencies or associations and organizations who work on behalf of survivors uh, in curtailing systematic sexual abuse and ask what those what they recommend as best practices. You know, I don't know what the first thing that they're going to say is, how about universal background checks? That's yep. that's the very, very first protection that you can put in place to keep kids from getting abuse. And, and, and the church itself as a systemic organization does not want that protection in place. 
that says a lot about the ethics of this organization. Yeah. And the, and the apologists who are going out to try to defend it, what, in my opinion, is the absolutely undefendable position, um, I think is absolutely um, I think I think it's absolutely horrific. I can't say it any other way. Um, you know, Bryce, uh, have we ruminated properly on the uh, Great and Spacious Beehive this week? Uh, I suppose there has been quite a bit of ruminating, been a bit of ruminating on my side here. Yeah. Uh, feeling good. Feeling spiced up. Got my blood pressure pumping. Well, I, you know, thanks so much for uh, being on here. And for those of you out there, you know, we drop all of our episodes live on Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. on YouTube, where you can interact with uh, your humble host and our host in the live chat. We'd be delighted to have you join us there. And we're also on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're absolutely everywhere. Drop us a like. Drop us a subscription. We'd be very grateful for that. Give us a thumbs up. We're on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review. Thanks so much for being here, Bryce. Really appreciate it. It was, it was a pleasure Absolutely. to have you on. I'm going to be looking forward to, especially your Iron Raw. i, I got to get through the rest of those episodes. Those are going to be great. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. You got it. Hey, and uh, remember, remember, Bryce, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. So long. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for for supporting us on Patreon.com.